Hello and welcome to Staff Picks, the podcast for movie nerds by movie nerds. As always, I'm Mario Lanza and I am your host on our journey through the movies out there that just need a little more love. And our movie today is once again part of Horror Month 2020 as I try to pick eight of my favorite horror movies and get you to love them as much as I do. Our movie today is probably the most well-known of the eight movies I'm doing this month. This is the uh, most mainstream. I'm sure many of my listeners have seen it before. It's the 1979 cult classic Phantasm, which is one of those movies that is always stuck in my head. And again, it's not the greatest horror movie ever made. It's not the scariest, but it's so damn weird and distinct. And there's so many little iconic things about it that I've always loved that it's one I've just always wanted to have feature on staff picks. So here we go. We are going to delve into the legend of the tall man and the sentinel spheres and the Morningside mortuary and phantasm. And my guest for this one he has been on the show before, one of my best friends who I have had as a guest on Staff Picks. In fact, if you listen to my 100th episode, he was the guy who interviewed me. Uh, he lives very close to me nearby here in Southern California. He's an actor, big movie fan, horror fan, probably knows as much about horror movies as I do. We are just kind of peas in a pod. Always fun to welcome him back to the show. Welcome Christopher Charty. Hello. Very happy to be here in October, especially with all the theaters closed and everything. So it's going to be fun to sit down and, and talk about horror again. <laughs> wow, so you come in here and you start off super depressing. Oh, the world sucks, but let's do this. <laughs> Worst year ever. But uh, <laughs> no, I, I'm very happy to be back and um, happy to be talking about this movie. Now, we have a little different experience with this because I, I know you go way back with this movie and – I'm a relative newcomer to Phantasm. Only uh, a couple of years ago did I did I see the whole series, um, and I actually went to the uh, West Coast premiere of Ravager, which we won't talk about. But um, and it was also the 4K restoration uh, West Coast premiere of Phantasm, which was amazing. Um, I had seen it before that, but uh, the restoration. Well, we should talk about that, too, because now you have you seen the restoration before? I have not. No. OK, so I have only seen the original theatrical cut once and I've seen the the restoration a couple of times. I don't think there's that many differences, but um, I'll, I'll talk about them as we go. He did. Uh, Don Coscarelli did clean up a couple of things in the in the restoration now now what is there to clean up in phantasm how dare you <laughs> well <laughs> um uh, Look, before okay before before chris gives this answer before we started recording this podcast we were just pointing out as much as we love this movie it has many many flaws and it would probably make an excellent mystery science theater movie as well but we love it in spite of its flaws so with that in mind please explain what is there to clean up in this movie <laughs> Well, uh, there was fishing line in several shots. Uh, I think is I think the ones with the sphere, especially. Um, there's one scene in the white room where apparently, and I never noticed this. There's a yellow bucket just sitting there in the corner <laughs> that a prop guy had left or something. And and it, Don Coscarelli said that always bugged the hell out of me. So <laughs> that was digitally removed from the restoration. Um, one of the, the ball effect was changed. Because um, 
if you look at it, you can see the stationary camera in the mirror, you know, in the in the sphere. Uh, so they changed it so that it looks like it's actually moving now. It, it's a beautiful shot, and it's only a couple seconds. Um, beyond that, there wasn't that much else that they fixed. He was very, very conservative, conservative about what he did. So he's not fucking George Lucas, basically. No. Okay. <laughs> and I, I think there's gonna there isn't gonna be like a drastic difference when we talk about these. So. <laughs> okay. Um, you said I have a longer history with this movie than you. I actually don't have that long a history. My 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 origin story as a Phantasm fan is kind of funny. That I grew up in the you know early mid '80s, big horror fan. My mom and dad wouldn't let me watch R-rated movies, so. I didn't get to see too many, but I knew about them. I go in the video store and lovingly just stroke the titles, all the horror movies I'm going to see one day when I'm old enough. And I knew every single big movie out there, but I had never heard of Phantasm. I had no idea what this movie was. And what I remember is in 1987, I believe, 86, 87, 88, it was a big deal because Phantasm 2 was coming out. And I'm yeah. like, what the fuck is Phantasm 1? I've never heard of Phantasm 1. <laughs> I had the same experience. Yeah. Um, in fact, I I I seem to remember that I thought I thought Phantasm Two was the first movie because that was the one I was used to seeing. You know, I saw the trailers and the commercials, and I probably saw parts of it on cable. And and to me, that was the Phantasm movie. And then I found out there was this one from 1979. Mm-hmm. It's like how how far back does this series go? <laughs> but yeah, Phantasm Two was was my first exposure to this series. Yeah, but to me, that will always be the defining trademark of this movie and, you know, there's a whole franchise, but just, uh, we're just talking about this movie, basically, but it's the movie that had the sequel that was way later than the original, and, like, I had no idea there was even an original. Like, this would have been a standalone, kind of obscure little movie, one-off, and then mm-hmm. they many years later, they made a franchise out of it, and that's what I always remember, because that gap was so big. Yeah, it's very strange. In fact, I... You know, as I sit here, I, I I can't really think of another franchise that had that big of a gap be- between the first and second film. I mean, obviously, if you've not seen Super Troopers and Super Troopers 2, my friend. Oh, really? <laughs> um, was there a gap? Oh, yeah. It's like uh, 20 years. Oh, good Lord. <laughs> wow. Veering away from horror quickly. But yeah, back to Phantasm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think um, I think Phantasm 2 was a different studio as well. And um, I want to say that Phantasm 2 was actually the only Phantasm film in print for a while. Hmm. That seems to be my recollection, um, because shortly before I got into the franchise, you could not find these movies anywhere. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could maybe find them used, but um, my recollection is you could not find these. And then, and then I think they reissued them on DVD. And then now, of course, we have the Blu-ray sets and everything and the 4K restoration of this one. But I think they were pretty, pretty rare for a bit. Huh. Okay. Yeah, because that fits my memory as well, that it was the longest time before I found Phantasm. And I don't remember the first time I saw it. I don't remember my reaction to it. I just remember thinking, well, that was different. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Like this, that's the one thing we want to get across in this podcast. This is maybe the most unique horror movie that has ever been made. That's There's no comparison to Phantasm. In fact, it's almost not a horror movie. It could be a sci-fi movie. It's a weird little movie that just kind of came and went in the 70s, and 
I don't think people would even know about it today if they hadn't made a franchise about it a decade later. But it's again, it's it's indefinable. Yeah, it's a weird hybrid of things. And um, Don Coscarelli, you know, he said there are definite influences here, uh, like uh, Suspiria, which I could definitely see not only in the not only in the soundtrack, but in the in the visual sense of the movie. Um, Invaders from Mars, which I have not seen. Um, which he said is actually about a boy who saw something and no one believes him. He <laughs> said he took that from Invaders from Mars. And then he actually had wanted to adapt Ray Bradbury's Something Wicked This Way Comes for film. There was a story about that where they went all the way to Ray Bradbury's offices and tried to get permission. And they, Paul Pepperman, the co-producer, said that there was an actual sign on the door saying go away i don't know if that's true or not they finally called don coscarelli and said you just missed it we just sold the rights to somebody to do that but he was influenced by that book to make phantasm and that's it's theorized that that's where the tall man came from i haven't seen coscarelli confirm that but i know something wicked this way comes was a huge influence on this and still, I can't quite think of anything like this movie out there. <laughs> yeah, I was going to sum it up because I am going to assume we have some listeners out there who do not know this movie. And I'll give you the short version is that there's this creepy little mortuary where the creepy mortician is doing weird things to bodies. And he's got these little sentinel spears, these little steel balls guarding the... Uh, the mortuary that'll fly around, and if you try to intrude, they will drill into your brain and spill your brain out. But underneath all this movie, it's a whole science fiction thing about bodies being sent to other planets to be slaves. And it's about these little, you know, these two 70s kids who find out the secret of the mortuary and try to expose it and stop it. And, like, that's the most benign way I can describe it, but it's way goofier than that. And there's evil druid dwarves. <laughs> Jawas, they're Jawas. Come on, <laughs> they're not, they're not uh, uh, Dink Dinks or <laughs> <laughs> yes. Spaceballs. Um, yeah, it's it throws a lot of stuff in, and uh, that's another thing I, I was reading about. There was a script at one point, <laughs> <laughs> but it kind of just got abandoned. You know, they, a lot of the stuff they did was on the fly. They improvised a lot. Reggie Bannister said that. You know, he he saw the script once, but he didn't even see the whole script in its entirety. He only saw certain scenes and then, you know, they would just sort of put it aside and improvise. But I think it gives this movie a really fun, like verite kind of feel. And there are scenes where it's like, are they just talking? <laughs> like It just seems like they're just hanging out. But but it's never in a, I would say it's never in a way that feels like it's not proficient so it, it's just a hair above schlock i i think it i think it does it well enough there's one performance in this movie that i have a little bit of a problem with i think it's very amateur hmm. and we'll get to that okay i want to see if you can guess who that is i can already but, tell you um, who it is i know we'll get there yeah okay <laughs> <laughs> but on the whole you know and coscarelli said he made this at, at 24 years old on modest means they they got this duplex in Van Nuys and housed the crew. They had no schedule. They had no pay. 
but they had a food budget and unlimited beer. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, this is very much like a, a gorilla kind of horror movie and for better or worse, you know. OK, um, yeah. This movie, I, I will flat out say it's not great. It's not a masterpiece, but it somehow works and it lodges in your brain and you remember it and it's fun. That's the other thing. Um, I was going to give a little trivia note here. You may find this interesting. Like, I found this to be this obscure little niche movie that nobody had heard of, but that is actually not accurate. That I remember reading some YouTube videos that there was like a. Uh, clips of this movie on YouTube and people who grew up in the era in the late seventies and saw this movie in a theater would all just, you know, be wistful about how wonderful this movie was to their childhood. And apparently a couple of people have made this, some variant of this comment that in 1979, if you were a teenager, this was the movie you had to see. Like this was the talk of every teenager that summer in 79 because it was so big among young people and it was just different and hip and fun and scary and creepy and memorable. And so like this was a really big movie for its time, which I was not aware of because I'm a little too young for that. Yeah, I remember you telling me that. And um, and actually on that note, um, Don Coscarelli <clears throat> said and I've actually seen two Q&A's from him now at different screenings. And he was saying that like, he, he quoted the old William Goldman line in Hollywood. No one knows anything. Um, no distributor wanted this movie except <laughs> Avco embassy. And it ended up being the first horror film from Avco embassy. And it saved the studio from bankruptcy. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And um, so what they did is they, they had these midnight sneak previews four Saturdays before the film even opened in Westwood and it built up all this word of mouth. So by the time it came out, it got this buzz and people were really into it. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. So it backs up the story. So this was yeah, indeed absolutely. yeah, a big word of mouth movie among young horror fans in the late seventies. And like if well, Chris and I were talking about this right before the podcast, 1978 Halloween, 1980, Friday the 13th, Alien is in there somewhere. So there's all these big, iconic movies that are coming out around the same time. Phantasm, of course, kind of gets buried in there because it's nowhere near as big as those other ones. But I'd make the argument it's way better than Friday the 13th. I think this is better than that one. Oh, yeah. And and I would say it's, it's definitely more ambitious. <laughs> uh, it's a lot weirder. It's a lot more unique. Um, yeah, you know, Friday the 13th, I do kind of love it. I love I I love that series, you know, to an extent. <laughs> um, but they are slasher films, you know. They're, they're they film they follow a template. Phantasm is in its own universe. Um, in fact, Don Coscarelli had said that he was on a quest to make something unexpected. I thought that was <laughs> a great line, and and that's totally what it was. I mean, like I said, it has precursors. But there's nothing quite like this movie that I've seen. <laughs> I will add to that. So I've shown this movie around to everybody I know, everyone I love. My daughter, big horror fan, not impressed by Phantasm, does not like Phantasm. Really? My wife, my wife will watch anything, not impressed by Phantasm. So it's a hard sell around this house. But again, 
I make the argument that it's kind of a mystery science theater movie. I like the fact that it's so amateurish and kind of goofy, but I can see like this, this is not a legit great movie, but again, I will defend it to the death because it's fun to watch and everyone should at least know about it just because again, it's so different. Yeah. And I mean, it is ramshackle, um, but a lot of my favorite horror films are honestly, like that, I'm surprised they didn't like it because I I loved it from the first time I saw it. Now I will say that I can't quite get to like five stars with it. <laughs> <laughs> and in my wife and daughter's defense, they're both crazy. <laughs> Don't tell them I said that. <laughs> okay, I won't. <laughs> Hopefully they aren't listening. Yeah. Okay, uh, a couple other things. So. Uh, I own this movie on DVD. I love it. I'm a big fan of it. Um, although my DVD broke for some reason, so I could not watch it to prepare for this podcast. But oh, no. as luck would have it, it's available for free on Tubi TV if anybody wants to watch it. You can watch it for free right now. Oh, yeah, Tubi. I, I've I've definitely streamed some things on there. It does suck a little because it has ads and stuff. But, hey, it's free movies. Yeah. <laughs> okay, and the other thing I wanted to point out is, uh, uh, well, two things. The music in this movie is so good. It's so much better than it has any right to be. And yep. it's kind of like Halloween in that way. Like, the movie itself is maybe not that special, but you throw the music on top of it, and I would put the Phantasm music almost up there with Halloween. I think those are maybe the two best horror scores ever. I would completely agree with you. Um, and those two guys... Fred Myro and Malcolm Seagrave, they had uh, apparently had a classical background and they had scored Don Costarelli's first two films. Um, and I, they did cite Suspiria as an influence. Uh, Goblin is the is the band that did Suspiria and, and a lot of other great Italian horror films, um, as well as Dawn of the Dead. Mm -hmm. um, but, yeah, I, I was sitting there watching it. And the, actually, the first time I saw this, I think the soundtrack was probably my favorite part of the whole movie. Like, wow, this is a really good soundtrack. I mean, it's just so creepy. And then there's moments that remind me of The Doors, and some of it reminds me of Pink Floyd. I, it's it's a great score, and it really it really propels this movie all the way through, I think. Yeah. It has no business being on a movie this amateurish. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, hearing the, the stereo remix, um, is really interesting because I know the original film was in mono, but um, the, the first DVD I saw and uh, the 4K restoration has a nice stereo remix. And there you really get the sense that, wow, this is like a really proficient score. <laughs> this is like, <laughs> the, I, I, I would not, I would not object to the idea that it's the best part of the movie. I, I, I would agree. Okay, and although you and I have, are going to come, come to fisticuffs here because uh -oh. there's a second version of the Phantasm theme that I love just as much that you do not like. That's the disco version. Oh, good Lord. <laughs> okay, I'll give people a history. There, the Phantasm movie was a big deal and the soundtrack was a big deal. So because it was the late 70s, they made a disco dance party version of it. And it was released on this blood red record vinyl at the time. And it's one of the most difficult collector's items to find in the horror community nowadays. 
But if you buy the special edition DVD or you go on uh, YouTube, you can listen to this disco version, which I think is so fun and catchy. In fact, I play it at my house every Halloween during trick-or-treating. I, that's my go-to music. But Chris doesn't like it, so we won't talk well, too much about it. Even as someone who actually loves disco, um, and, and I actually love the so-called disco theme uh, from Friday the 13th Part 3, which isn't really disco. It's more like electro, but they mm-hmm. call it the disco theme. But yeah, the I think the original Phantasm theme is so perfect. It, it's one of my favorite pieces of music and horror. So when I heard the disco version, I was like, yeah, I can't really go there. <laughs> All right, get off. Get off the podcast right now. <laughs> I'll never be invited back. You're banned from staff picks. <laughs> okay. okay. I mean, so I get it. I yeah. get it. We'll, we'll go into the plot here. Again, it's a very complicated plot. It's really a bizarre <laughs> movie. I've seen this movie so many times, and I still could not tell you how it ends. There's so many weird plot twists at the end. I always forget, like, half of them. <laughs> it gets very confusing, and I, I do think a lot of that is by design because they said, you know, there's, like, a dreamlike logic to the film. But on the same token, they also didn't have a script. Yeah, yeah. I think it was Paul Pepperman that said, well, if there's a dreamlike logic to the movie, it's because we weren't very organized in the editing room. (laughs) So, you know. Yeah, but we will talk about the one legacy of this movie, and this is Angus Scrim, the actor. Yeah. It has to be mentioned. One of the nicest people ever. I mean, I have seen this guy at uh, conventions. I've seen videos of him. He was the greatest guy. He plays a villain in this movie. If you've never seen it, he plays the tall man, one of the iconic horror movie villains. <laughs> and I just, he loved this role. He loved this movie, but he was such a nice, you know, urbane, distinguished older man who got this role late in life. And I think it's very hilarious that this is the movie he became you know, associated with, and he just loved it. He milked it until the day he died, and he was the greatest guy. I've heard the same thing that you have. In fact, I have a friend that met him at a convention and said he could not have been more different than his on-screen character. <laughs> he was, like, such a sweet man. He took his time with everybody. He was so nice to talk to. And uh, I found this out the other day that Angus Scrim started out writing liner notes for albums. Did you know this? <laughs> I think I do remember that, yeah. And who else did that? Phil Hartman or something? Someone else did that, too. Yeah, Phil Hartman did album cover artwork. Yeah. Um, so Angus Grimm, if this is to be believed, he wrote the liner notes to Meet the Beatles. <laughs> the tall man? Yes. <laughs> he worked for Capitol in the 1960s, and he was writing liner notes for like Sinatra and the Beatles and all these other artists. And he actually won a Grammy at one point for liner <laughs> notes. And then he ends up as a tall man in this cult horror film. Have you seen the little intro that he recorded at the start of the special edition DVD? I don't think I have, no. It's great. He sits there and he's in a chair and he's like, Hello, my name is Angus Scrim, distinguished actor. He goes, I've had a long and, you know, it's illustrious stage career playing all sorts of people. And then one time in the late 70s, I got a script that said, We'd like you to play an alien. And he's like, and I was, of, I was, of course, intrigued. An alien, I will be from another land. Perhaps I'll be, I'll be asked to learn an accent or a new language. I'll be asked to speak in dialect. And they told me, no, Mr. Scrim, you'll be an alien from a far-off planet who steals bodies, shrinks them down, and sends them off to do slave labor. I was not aware this was the movie I was signing on for. 
Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> but he's great. And then at the end of the video, he's like, but remember, I will always be the tall man. And then he morphs his face, and he becomes the tall man. And he, he's so creepy all of a sudden. It's such a great little turn. Oh, wow. He had such a great face for this genre and a great voice. And, you know, when I was little, I confused him with um, Julian Beck in the Poltergeist series. Because mm-hmm. I was like, creepy old guy. You know, all creepy old guys look the same. But, uh, yeah, once I got into Phantasm, I was like, oh, okay. Okay, so this guy's in Phantasm. But it's not the same actor as Poltergeist. But I, I had them confused. And that is why you were scared of old people the rest of your life. <laughs> and aging, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so here we go. We're going to walk through the best we can, the plot of Phantasm, which I will warn you if you've never seen it, is maybe the most 1970s movie you are ever going to see. Fashion, language, you know, dialogue, it just could not have been made any time but the late 70s. You know, I, I wrote that in my notes, too, and I have to admit that is part of why I love this movie. It is because I, I don't think date stamping something is, is a negative. No. You know, and, and it's this is just a, a perfect little time capsule of the late 70s. Everything it, about it. It's very distinct. I will say that. Yeah. Yeah. OK, so here we go. The movie opens in a cemetery as you'd expect this movie a movie like this to start it's a couple having sex in the middle of a graveyard <laughs> yeah they immediately go into the porn angle <laughs> which which i think don coscarelli to his credit said that he was sort of like a satire i mean it certainly comes off that way so Okay, yeah, so you have a couple. There's this woman in lavender, and she's with a guy, this scruffy-looking 70s dude named Tommy, and uh, they're walking in the cemetery, and then he lays down, and she climbs up right on top of him. All right, Hamilton. And uh, <laughs> and then in the middle of sex, she stabs him. She, like, morphs into this creepy old man and then stabs him in a chest, and that's the opening of your movie. Yeah, it, this movie wastes no time. In fact, through through throughout throughout the whole runtime, I would say the pacing of this movie is is one of its greatest strengths too. I mean, it it, it goes for it at the beginning, and it and it doesn't hesitate with the weirdness. <laughs> yeah, I have one flaw with the pacing at the end. I think it's about ten minutes too long. It kind of runs out of steam. Yeah, but it but it does get it moves quickly. Okay, I, I could see that. All right. So this Tommy guy gets murdered by this woman who is actually the tall man. So I guess you now I never put two and two together. He was having sex with the tall man. So go tall man. <laughs> I wrote that in my notes too. <laughs> I was like, oh yeah. So the so the tall man was just walking around having sex with dudes and killing them the whole movie. Yeah, tall man gets a lot of action in this movie. <laughs> Okay, so the next day, we go to the funeral, the aforementioned Tommy. Let's talk about the funeral. What happens here? Well, um, some weird things start to happen. What? Around... <laughs> everything in this movie – see, there's nothing normal that happens in this movie. Uh, everything has this weird sort of tone to it. and um, So if I remember correctly, Tom, uh, Mike – our young protagonist sees some strange things. Uh, is this is this before this happens? Well, it's all simultaneously. Yeah. Okay. So I'll I'll set the picture. So 
the, this guy who died in the cemetery, Tommy, was part of a trio. These three guys, Jody, Reg, the ice cream man, and Tommy. And so Tommy dies, and the next day or whatever, they have the funeral. So everyone's gathering at this Morningside mortuary to, you know, pay their pay homage. And outside the cemetery is Jody's younger brother, Mike, who is barred from the funeral, but is spying on it. So, yeah, the, the buddies are there in the this big old mortuary where they're saying goodbye to their friend. And uh, it's just this big old creepy white building with marble hallways. Where was this film? This was her famous building, right? Oh, gosh. Um, I don't know. Um, For some reason, I want to say up in Oakland, California, but that could be wrong. Yeah, I, I actually don't know. I should have looked that up. <laughs> wow, neither one of us looked it up. Good job, us. Hi there, this is Mario, just popping in for a quick update. I looked it up after we recorded this podcast, and the Morningside Mortuary is indeed in Oakland, California. That is the Dunsmuir Estate in Oakland, which was also featured in the movies So I Married an Axe Murderer, Burnt Offerings, and A View to a Kill. So turns out I was correct, it was in Oakland. But yeah, so it's this big mortuary, and uh, and when the older brother is inside the mortuary, Jody, this is the older of the two brothers, you know, they're saying goodbye to their friend, he hears these little gremlin-like noises, little creepy things around the corners in this mortuary, but he can never quite identify what it is. He's kind of looking around, like, what are these noises in the mortuary? And this is where he gets grabbed on the shoulder by the tall man, who says, like, the funeral is about to begin, sir. <laughs> So right away, you know what this guy is like. He's tall and he has a gruff voice. He is the one of the creepiest villains in any horror movie. And he doesn't even have to do that much. <laughs> yeah, he just walks around in a suit. That's all he does. He doesn't actually do anything sinister for most of the movie. Yeah. Yeah, and they said they actually gave him lifts and, and they gave him a suit that was too small for him so that he would seem taller and skinnier than he is, which just makes it even creepier. Okay, yeah, so there's this creepy, tall dude in the mortuary. There's these little gremlin things running around outside. And the little brother, Mike, who is barred from the funeral home because apparently his parents died a year ago. Funerals give him nightmares. He's not allowed to go. He's out watching the proceedings through the binoculars. And as he's watching, he sees the tall man after the funeral pick up this, the casket with one hand and put it into a hearse. And he's like, and he mouths, what the fuck? Which I know must have got a big laugh in the theater. <laughs> and I think I would actually say that's one element of this movie that doesn't get talked about that much is it's actually really funny in parts because um, it's it's very, very creepy. But the humor sort of comes out of nowhere. There's, there's, there's a couple of really great lines in this movie and a couple of really funny moments that you wouldn't expect. No, no, I agree. There's some great one-liners in this movie, and it is funny at times. They, It's almost more of a comedy than a horror, some of the parts. Maybe unintentionally, but... Especially with Reggie, who I think is sort of the the, the uh, MVP of this franchise. Okay, so we've had, we've met the all the characters we're going to have in the movie, basically. This older brother, Jody, who's about 20, I don't know, 21... Younger brother, Mike, who's 13. Although, I swear to God, I always want to call the older one Mike and the younger one Jody, because Jody seems like a younger name. And, you know, I was watching it last night thinking one of them was named Toby, and I don't know where I got that from. <laughs> <laughs> Something about this movie, no matter how many times I see it, I forget things in it. And not, I don't think it's a forgettable film, but the sort of fever dream quality of this movie 
I forget like the order of things. I forget the the progression of events, the the plot elements. <laughs> does it have that effect? Well, you've seen it way more than I have. So no, it, I totally does. Nothing sticks with me in this movie. I know like four scenes, and the rest is kind of jumbled up. Yeah, it, it's almost on like a like a Kubrick level of being misleading and and confusing. Although I don't know if it was intentional. <laughs> like, you don't know if this movie is Kubrickian, actually. Right. <laughs> I know that their goal was to make something confusing and weird, but I don't know how much of it was actually intentional on Coscarelli's part. It's just sort of accidentally weird. It's because it has a dreamlike quality. Right? <laughs> well, there was another great quote that Coscarelli said was, I, I took elements from the movies that I grew up watching and made something bizarre out of them. <laughs> that was a great way to, to summarize this film. Okay, so we have the creepy mortuary, which again is like the star of the movie. I love this place, the Morningside Cemetery. Just all white columns, the big, endless white hallways. It's a perfect place for a horror movie. I, I actually wrote in my notes that this movie is like uh, cemetery porn, basically. <laughs> yes. Like, it is so beautiful. If you have anything, if you have any kind of, you know, attachment to cemeteries or interest in cemeteries and you like horror, this is the movie for you. If you enjoy fapping to cemeteries, yeah, this is your movie. Not not my proudest fap, right? <laughs> this is your car, Mr. Griswold. Yeah. Okay. So, all right. So uh, the next day, the little brother, Mikey, who saw these creepy things at the funeral home, goes to – apparently he has a friend who's a psychic. She's got like a creepy grandma. What the hell is this subplot? I couldn't even begin to tell you. <laughs> Creepy old blind psychic with her blonde, marginally interested younger granddaughter. And yeah, and this is this is the scene where uh, they tell little Mike to put his hand in the box. Yeah, the uh, the those the a test of your faith or fear or something. Put your hand in the black box, which apparently, according to Don Coscarelli, was a Dune reference. <laughs> I, I didn't know that before. Okay, one of the things we'll clarify as we're going through this movie. This movie does not take place in the known universe where humans act and behave like real humans. <laughs> <laughs> like the fact this little, this little 13-year-old boy lives alone with his brother, drives a car. He's 13, he drives a car. His best friend has a creepy psychic grandmother. Yeah, yeah. Well, 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 Mario, it's because the movie has such a dreamlike quality. I was just going to say it was the 70s. <laughs> well, there's lots of reefer going around, too. <laughs> All right, so Mike Mike is talking to his creepy friend and her creepy grandma, and we basically fill in on the backstory that Mike and Jody's parents died in a car crash about a year ago, and so ever since then... They've been living alone, the 20-year-old and the 13-year-old. And the older one, Jody, wants to leave, set off and find his fortune. But it's hard because Mike knows this and Mike follows him everywhere, which, again, is not the way humans behave. But in this movie, that's how we do it. Yeah, yeah. This is such a strange plot element. Um, but but then <laughs> there's so much about this movie that's strange. Um, I, 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 I don't want to say this, but it's it's almost like I hate to say this. It's almost like a room level of logic, <laughs> <laughs> except on the, the part of the room, I think it's just complete ineptitude on the filmmaker's part. I, I know that they were going for uh, some sort of suspension of disbelief in this film. 
So, you know, I'm not going to knock him too much for it. But yeah, things, plot threads in this don't really pan out or make logical sense. It, it very much creates its own universe, I think, is a polite way to put it. But that's why it sticks with people over the years the same way The Room did. And it's not because it's poorly made. It's just because who came up with this movie? It doesn't really follow any other movie. And again, like like we were both saying, the the story elements don't really fit together or exist in any known universe we're aware of. The people are weird. Yeah. And and, and I will say that it is sometimes difficult, as I said before, to, to figure out what the hell's going on <laughs> and what's a dream and what's real. I You know, I... Like I said, I've watched this five times, and I still am not entirely sure which of this is a dream and, and which is happening in the, in the so-called real world of the movie. Okay, so during this flashback when Mikey's with the psychic, we see the end of the funeral scene. This is the one you were talking about earlier, where Mike is riding his dirt bike through all the graves, and the tall man sees him, and he like flicks his fingers and makes Michael flying off his dirt bike. So all, right from the start, we know the tall man is something sinister. There's something supernatural about this guy. Okay, so here we go with Reg. Now we're going to start meeting the characters. They're going to be hanging out. So Reg, the ice cream man, will come over and hang out with Jody at the house. And we're treated to a weird three-minute guitar solo where they have a song together. <laughs> I love this part so much. Um you know, Reggie and the actor that played um, Jody, Bill Thornberry, they had just known each other for a while and they'd played music together and it just sort of got thrown into this movie. And But the funny part is you're like, oh, God, what are they doing? And then they play for, you know, a couple of seconds. You're like, oh, these guys are actually really good musicians. <laughs> like, this is a pretty cool little song. In a scene that has no business being in this movie. <laughs> In any other movie, you'd go, oh, God, <laughs> this director sucks, right? Yeah, it's just two dudes on a porch playing a little guitar song they wrote called Just Sitting Here at Midnight. And I will say that at one of the screenings I saw of this, where they had almost the entire cast there, Reggie and um, Bill Thornberry, they did a just a, a rendition of this song, like a three-minute rendition. It was, it was really cool. But, yeah, it, it's just out of nowhere. But but I, I, I can't help but love this part of the movie. Well, here's what I love about this movie. At one point in the middle of their song, Reggie has a little tuning fork where he tunes his guitar, which will later be becoming a huge plot point in the movie, the tuning fork. And this irritates me because when he hits that tuning fork, it's an A sharp. Mm -hmm. It should be an A natural. Those bastards. <laughs> this is where the musician in me comes out. Um, I don't think a tuning fork – I don't think they make tuning forks in A-sharp. Um, so when he hits that, it's an A-sharp, and then it segues into that scene in the mortuary, and suddenly the score or the sound effects are playing an A. I was like, why did they do that? Why did they make that two different pitches? Uh, I mean, unless they were trying to purposely disorient the viewer, but I don't think I'm willing to give them that much credit. Once again, a dreamlike quality. <laughs> I think, yeah. I mean, unintentionally, maybe. But I, if I were asking Don Coscarelli a question, I would ask him, did you mean to do that? He would probably say no. Okay, the plot's going to advance here. So 
the next night, now remember at the start of the movie, this guy Tommy met a girl, they went out to a cemetery, she mounted him and then killed him. Well, the older brother Jody is about to meet the same fate, because this is the, the night where he goes to a bar, and he picks up a woman in the bar, and uh-oh, it's the same lavender-clad blonde woman as the start of the movie. Yeah, this is the uh, the Dunes Cantina, right? <laughs> yes. Uh, which is another random part of this. Um I don't know. Have you seen the Robert Altman film Three Women? I have with Shelley Duvall and Sissy Spacek. Yeah. Yeah. I, that's another dreamlike, bizarre movie that I love. And this part reminded me of Three Women. I don't know if it was an intentional reference, but when going out to this little ramshackle bar in the middle, you don't, we don't even know where they are. You just see the bar. <laughs> like, what the hell is he doing here now? But it, it totally remind me of Three Women. Why? Because because there's a woman in it? Why? <laughs> uh, you remember in Three Women, there's this old, they visit this old, like, little tiny western town outside of Palm Springs. Remember that? And uh, so they keep coming back to that little town throughout the movie. Like, why are they here? What is this? <laughs> okay, so, well, this is apparently the only bar in town where dudes can pick up women. So Jody goes to the bar, he picks up the blonde woman, and we don't really see like what she says but ostensibly it's hey let's go have sex in the cemetery <laughs> and jody's like score all right so they go out there but luckily he does not meet the same fate as tommy because he's distracted by his younger brother following him again yep and <laughs> they make a joke out of it in the movie i mean mike really does follow jody everywhere like a little puppy dog it's very strange um, but again, there's this classic shot where you see um, Jody and this girl walk, you know, towards the left-hand side of the screen after he picks her up, and then you see Mike just sort of sulk behind him. <laughs> it, it's, it reminded me of Peanuts for some reason, like a really warped version of Peanuts, just like some classic gag, you know. <laughs> where Linus was watching Charlie Brown have sex in a cemetery. Who ended up being an elderly man. Yeah. Is this how the great pumpkin scene started or ended up? <laughs> it's the tall man, Charlie Brown. Yeah. So Mike is staring, watching his brother have sex, which there's a whole host of Freudian problems with this scene. But You know what? That, I didn't even think about that. That is pretty effed up. <laughs> there you go. Now it's a weird movie. But there's a great comic moment here where the girl pulls off her top, the boobs come out, and we cut to little 13-year-old Mike, and he gets the biggest shit-eating grin on his face because he's seeing boobs. And I know in the theater the audience was cheering. That was a, a very, like, Friday the 13th Part 4 kind of moment <laughs> when uh, Corey Feldman is, like, staring through the binoculars at the neighbor, and then he gets all excited. That's what that remind me of. Yeah, it's very similar. Yeah, so Mike is watching his brother have sex, and then he's startled because there's these little, again, we heard those little creepy things in the mortuary at the start of the movie. One of them is out in the forest next to Mike by the cemetery, and it startles him. And so Mike screams and runs right by his brother on top of this woman, and the brother's like, what the hell, and turns around and has the girl's panties in his mouth. It's a wonderful scene. <laughs> Heartwarming. <laughs> And this is another thing that weirded me out. Why are the reactions in some of this movie, in some of the scenes in this movie, so delayed? Because when when Mike is is watching Jody, 
and the dwarves are making noise behind him, it takes him a little while to react. Now, maybe because he's staring at his brother having sex. I don't know. But also, when he runs screaming through this cemetery, it takes Jody, I don't know, four or five seconds to go, what the hell's that? And, and like, look around him. Like, what's with the delayed reactions here? Is it just that dreamlike quality again, I guess? <laughs> I don't want to get too far into this, but in the act of coitus, one must concentrate. So Jody was probably thinking about baseball and trying not to uh, finish too quickly. That's my answer to that. Sounds like a fortune cookie. <laughs> Just like a fortune cookie. Yeah. That's sage wisdom there. You ate a good meal, boy. <laughs> I, I, I could say things. I'm not even going to touch that. <laughs> so Jody gets off his woman and runs over to see his brother. What's wrong? And Mike's like, there's something out there in the woods that tried to kill me. Uh, This is one of my favorite lines. He says, it was little brown and low to the ground. I don't know why that made me laugh. It just did last night. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds like some cool line Samuel L. Jackson would say in a movie. (laughs) It was cool brown and low to the ground. It is such a 70s line. Again, it's just dripping with 70s in in the best way, I think. So that will be the whole first half of this movie. Mike knows something creepy is going on in the cemetery. The tall man's up to no good. There's these little dwarves around. Something weird's going on. The older brother doesn't see it. This will be the whole first half of the movie. And it culminates in the first dream sequence. Now, we're making fun of this movie, but the dream sequences are legitimately terrifying. This is fantastic. This scene, the way it's shot and everything, it's not very long. But man, is it effective. It's so creepy. All right, so explain this one to people. The first dream sequence in Mike's bedroom. Oh, God. (laughs) Um, I can't remember the entire way it plays out. Maybe let's have you do this. I'm sorry, did you watch this movie? (laughs) I told you it's a disorienting film. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so the dreamlike quality. So it starts with Mike in bed that night again. A little 13-year-old boy... Long, stringy red hair. Looks like a girl, like all boys did in the 70s. And he's laying in bed, and all of a sudden he wakes up, and he's in the cemetery. He's laying on his bed in the cemetery, and the tall man is looming right above him, like a, like almost like a Jesus cross. He's got his arms kind of out like that. And Mike looks up and screams. And then these zombie hands reach out from the graves underneath him, pull him down into earth as he screams. It's a, it's a wonderfully creepy little scene, and we'll see a couple more like that later. Oh, okay. Uh, now, I, I thought I had missed some preamble to that, but that's exactly what I remember, too. The main thing I remember is him in bed and the tall man standing above him. And the lighting in this scene, too, is, is so effective. It's just a great shot. Okay, so we're going to go from that scene to a couple escalating moments where Mike realizes things are creepy in this town with all this cemetery stuff. Let's see. We see him walking through downtown and he sees the tall man by the ice cream truck that's kind of an iconic scene too oh i love that scene that you know that might be my favorite scene in the whole movie when mike is just walking through town in broad daylight too when he sees the tall man across the street the tall man stops walking and turns to face him and then reggie is in front of him loading his ice cream truck and there's this beautiful like mist that's flowing out of the ice cream truck and then the tall man begins to like i don't know what he's doing he's like inhaling the wafting fumes coming out of this ice cream truck 
It is so bizarre. And it's all in slow motion, too. Yeah, I, I never understood what he's doing. Like, he's getting off on the cold air. Like, the cold air somehow invigorates him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to see the tall man have an orgasm, but I believe we saw it right there. Well, remember, you know, he keeps seducing guys in the graveyard. So <laughs> he gets lucky a lot in this movie. <laughs> Would you get me a scoop of vanilla, boy? <laughs> All right, so... He plays a good game. <laughs> so here comes the next escalation of young Mike being tormented by the denizens of the Morningside Mortuary. This is a, perf- a personal favorite scene of mine. I will, I will delightfully call this the retard scene. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. Yes. <laughs> Explain this scene, which comes out of nowhere. <laughs> so this is where Mike is working on his car in the in the garage, right? In his own garage, yeah. And uh, he believes he hears some of these little dwarfs puttering around the garage again, and uh, and so he he eventually comes out and he stabs someone in the foot. He's thinking it's a dwarf, and it's actually uh, Jody again. And then, uh, well, I'll let you do the line. <laughs> it's a great line, but it's something that could not be said in a film today, probably. <laughs> All right. So he doesn't stab his brother, Jody. He hits him on that foot with a hammer. That's right. That's right. And, and I love that because there's a wonderfully delayed reaction from Jody. It's the one of the worst shots in the movie where Mike is under the car and he's working on this car and he hears these little things running around outside the car. It's kind of creepy. And then one of them knocks the jack of the car over. So it falls on Mike. Mike is trapped under the car and Mike tries to get out. And then his brother, Jody walks up. Mike hits his brother on the foot with a hammer to get his brother's attention. And there's like a three second delay. And then Jody's like, ow, like it it doesn't fit the scene at all. It's terrible. But again, I have to wonder if that's intentional. Cause as I said before, there's a lot of delayed, delayed reactions in this movie. So I wonder I would hate to say it's just bad editing or something, but maybe it was intentional. Maybe it was intentional to to, to be disorienting. I, I don't know. Once again, the dreamlike quality. <laughs> That's right. When in when in doubt, <laughs> say it's it's the unconventional narrative structure. We'll, we'll just say it's that. All right. So here's the line you were talking about. So Mike's like, one of those things from Morningside was in our garage trying to kill me. They knocked the car down on me. And Jody thinks about it for a second and says, are you sure it wasn't that retarded kid, Timmy, up the street? (laughs) So, again, there's a whole backstory there. I want to know more about Timmy. Does Timmy go around knocking people's cars onto them? What where did this come from? It makes there's no lead up to that. They never mention it again. But we will forever be blaming things on the retarded kid, Timmy. <laughs> would that be uh would Timmy be a MacGuffin? Is that what that is? Or Yeah, he's the red herring to throw you off the scent, to keep you in a dreamlike quality. Or what's that other thing that the nostalgia critic says, the big lipped alligator moment? I think that's what that is. The character that enters or is mentioned and is never mentioned again. That would be once again the retarded kid Timmy. <laughs> Can you repeat that, Mario? Because I was, I'm not sure I got it the first two times. Could you? What did he say again? Level up, level up, come on! Yes, so Timmy is blamed for knocking a car onto Mike, and they're very casual about it. Well, it could have just been Timmy. Whatever. He does that, you know. That's that's a Timmy move. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Classic Timmy. And again, 
a scene that's just dripping with 70s. I mean, in so many ways. But that's why I love this movie. It is a total time capsule. Back to when I was very, very, very small child. So I barely remember the 70s. But uh, yeah, this is this is kind of that look and aesthetic that I remember. That was the 70s for our younger listeners. Every neighborhood had people with delayed reactions and a Timmy in the neighborhood that would knock cars onto you. And a quote-unquote retarded neighbor, yeah. Yeah, it's like a Bill Cosby routine. Remember these neighbors that everyone had? Like, no. (laughs) No, we don't, Cos. Used to run real fast and pick his navel, yeah. (laughs) All right, so Mike is like, something's trying to kill me. These little monsters are following, following me. There's this tall man. I'm going up to that cemetery, and I'm going to find out what's going on up there. And so here we get one of the most iconic horror scenes ever. I mean, of any horror movie ever. Mike's first trip to Morningside with a knife to see what's going on. And this is where the main theme kicks in hard. Um, And I, I actually don't think we've talked enough about the music in this movie. I mean... It is just incredible. It, it, it adds so much. And as we said, you know, at the beginning, like, I don't think this movie would be as good if it didn't have this amazing score. Yeah, we, we should talk about it more. I, I feel like we have, but yeah, you should bring it up every time it pops up in the movie because it sells the scene so well. And they do it in a way where they, it's not like the first Nightmare on Elm Street where you keep getting that same cue over and over they actually weave it into other pieces of music or they transpose it or they take a little bit of it because that's their classical training you know so they don't just like beat you over the head with it it's actually really well done i think yeah you find yourself begging for it more like i wish that theme would pop up more often absolutely i totally agree okay i will give you the honor mr charty of explaining the silver ball scene this is where we first meet the sentinel sphere Oh, geez. Uh, Well, okay, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but this is where Mike goes into the mausoleum, right? Yeah, this is his first incursion all by himself, which culminates in a brain draining. Yeah, and this is where we encounter a guy who, to my eyes, looks like a cross between Brother Theodore and, like, John Paragon, Jambi the Genie. This weird guy with, like, a hat on. And uh, he looks like he could be, like, the tall man's shorter, dumpier brother, right? <laughs> yes. And uh, I can't remember what causes this, but I know that doesn't he chase Mike and then um, Mike sort of dodges the ball, right? Okay, okay, I'll do it. I'll do it here. This... Am I botching? No, you're not botching it, but I want to make sure we get this correct for people who have never seen this. So Mike breaks into the Morningside Mortuary at night, of course. People only do things at night in this movie. Which is another reason I love it. <laughs> yes. So he breaks into this mortuary, and he's going to see what's going on in this creepy place. And he's digging around through this coffins inside, and, you know, he kind of hears these little dwarves rustling around. He doesn't know what they are. We don't really see them in the scene. But at one point, there's a maintenance guy in the cemetery, like Chris said. Looks like the tall man's younger, dumpier brother. Right. And he's trying to catch Mike. He kind of hears Mike snooping around, so... uh He's like looking for him, trying to grab him. And this is where we see maybe the true star. I said Angus Graham was the star of this movie. Perhaps the main star is these little silver balls, which are the coolest little things. I love this as a horror device, that the way this place is guarded, that the tall man has these little silver spheres that just fly through the air like little robots. And they look for an intruder, and if they catch an intruder, they 
basically attach themselves to your forehead and and drill into your brain and it's horrifically gross and that's what happens these little silver ball one of them tries to catch mike and mike gets lucky because the ball hits the maintenance guy instead and oh boy here we go (laughs) so it burrows into the maintenance guy's forehead and then there's a little hole that opens up on the other side of the sphere and it just shoots this perfect stream of like uh, dirty yellow fluid in a just a perfect stream of it, and so he's holding his head, and it's just flowing out of his out of his brain. <laughs> it's it's a it's a lovely thing. <laughs> yeah, this is I mean the standout scene. If you were a kid and you saw this movie in the theater, this is the scene you remember. These little silver balls, and again, this is the iconic image of phantasm you know michael myers has the white mask and the knife jason Voorhees has the hockey mask freddy krueger has the glove phantasm has these little silver balls like the size of a baseball in fact did i tell you i have a christmas ornament a little phantasm christmas ornament i think you did yeah that's fantastic (laughs) it's got the little spikes and you got to turn it away so people don't walk into it (laughs) (laughs) that's so great i want one of those yeah, but this little silver ball, and it kills the maintenance guy, drills his brains out. And a wonderful scene where the guy's had his brain drained out, and then he pisses his pants. If you look, that's what you see. It's all over the floor, all this yellow. And it's like, ew. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I forgot about that. And and I would say that this this kill is just so funny, too. And it's it's almost like on like an Evil Dead level, well before Evil Dead. Wouldn't you say? Or maybe more Evil Dead 2? Well, yeah, that's, it's not filmed very well. It's, it's, it, they filmed it by having the ball attached to the guy's forehead, and they pull it backwards. And then they show the film in reverse. So it's very goofy to watch him standing there and just waiting for the ball to attach to his forehead. It's kind of dumb the way it looks. Now, see, this may be – I'd have to A, B the two versions, but this may be one of the scenes I was referencing earlier that was changed for the, for the uh, remastered version of the- 4K restoration, because um, when I was watching it last night, it looked pretty solid, um, and I know that they they cut you know as I said fishing line and stuff out too. So I'll I'll have to compare those again. Do you know how they filmed the scene? I've always loved this. How low budget this is. I don't remember no. <laughs> how they filmed this silver ball flying around this mausoleum is they hired a pitcher from UC or from Cal State Long Beach and they said take the silver ball and throw it down the hall as fast as you can and we'll just play it in reverse or whatever. So it's like that's just a pitch, that's all it is. <laughs> oh wow. And and I've heard them say that this this scene and all the the work with the ball was really challenging to do. You got to have a ball drill into a dude's head. (laughs) You got to give him credit for, you know, doing this on such a low budget and such a gorilla kind of shoot. I mean, it it does have its flaws, but I I think it's really effective, though. (laughs) Yeah. And again, this is the iconic moment of Phantasm. And the ball only really makes this appearance. It kind of has a second appearance later in the movie, but it doesn't last very long. It gets blown out of the sky by Jody. But... Once we get into the sequels, which, again, I don't like talking about sequels, but they really become silver ball heavy because they start throwing them all over the place in the sequels. Yeah, yeah. The sequels are really about the – the actually, for Phantasm 2, wasn't the tagline, the ball is back? Yeah, the ball is the star. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, after the after a while, it's, it's basically Reggie and the balls are the stars of the show. And, and Angus Scrim, I would argue. But not the retarded kid, Timmy. Does he come back? Uh, no, no. Uh, 
you know, they missed an opportunity with Ravager. They really should have brought him back. You know? <laughs> I will always wonder. I go to sleep at night wondering what happened to Timmy. <laughs> like that peripheral character on Saved by the Bell that came in the last season for only a couple of, was it Tori? She came in for a couple episodes and then disappeared and nobody knew what happened to her. So Timmy was like Cousin Oliver from the Brady Bunch. Exactly. There you go. That's a, that's a better, yeah. That's a better um, analogy. Okay, so so Mike is in the mortuary, and the Silver Sphere tried to kill him. It took out the maintenance guy instead. And so Mike basically gets chased out of the mortuary by the tall man. This is where they have their first little showdown. It's a creepy moment where they're just staring at each other in the mortuary. And then Mike runs away, and it's a big chase. And it culminates, if I recall, with the tall man getting his his hand slammed in a door and then Mike chops his fingers off and just to rub insult into injury Mike takes one of the guy's fingers and brings it home as a souvenir yeah. <laughs> I, this is another scene I forgot about when that when that door slams and you know it could be Paul Pepperman's hand uh, apparently Paul Pepperman the co-producer of this film did a lot of the effects and stunts and and was you know very instrumental in the making of this movie um, but yeah, so you just see this hand sort of flopping around as the door is closed, and then Mike just cuts cuts his finger off, and of course there's yellow blood everywhere. So Mike decides to keep the finger. Finders keepers. Right. <laughs> Which becomes uh, uh, kind of an interesting moment in a couple minutes after this. Okay, yeah, we'll talk about that in a second, but what I want to mention first is these little dwarf dudes in the mortuary, because, again, everyone remembers the tall man and the silver ball, but in terms of screen time, the little dwarves get far more screen time than the other ones. They're the real villains in this movie, these little dwarves running around guarding the cemetery. Now, do you know the controversy between that and Star Wars? No, I don't. Oh, I'm excited. I can share some some tea with you here. This sounds like a good story. Yeah. So when this movie came out, there was some controversy that Coscarelli was accused of ripping off Star Wars because the little dwarves in this have, you know, brown hooded robes and you don't see their face and they look very much like Jawas, the little dudes on Tatooine. But Coscarelli's argument was, I filmed this movie in 77 simultaneously or even before Star Wars. So it took two years for this movie to come out, but I didn't rip off anything. We just had consecutive uh, parallel ideas. That was his defense. Wow. I have never heard this before. He didn't even bring it up as a Q&A. Look, at, I am a Q&A for Don Coscarelli now. No, he didn't. Maybe it's something he just doesn't want to talk about anymore. <laughs> yeah, but again, it's very striking. They look like Jawas. They're the real bad guys in this movie. Or maybe he's legally prevented from talking about it. Mm, I don't know. Or maybe it's a dreamlike quality of trivia. <laughs> Only I have heard about it. Nobody else has. That's great, though. I hadn't heard that. Yeah. Wow. All right. So here we go. Here is what I would argue the worst scene in this movie. The finger back at the home. So Mike. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> oh, I don't know about that. It, it's amusing. All right, here we go. Let's let's listen. Let the audience decide for this one. So, Mike brings the finger back home to prove to his brother that creepy stuff's going up at morning Morningside. I cut off this dude's finger; it's still moving, and he has a little box. And so Jody's like, "Okay, show me the finger." And they open the box, and it's no longer a finger. Now it's the world's worst little hand puppet, shaped like a fly. 
Now, see again, this might be a might have been changed for the restoration because I was looking at it last night thinking it looked pretty good. Okay, there's so, no way they didn't restore that. Yeah, they had to. But the, the best part of this though is when he shows it to Jody, and and then the, he closes the box and goes, "Okay, I believe you." <laughs> It's such a funny moment. Yeah, if you've seen the original cut of this movie, the finger is turned into this killer fly that, swear to God, looks like a Muppet. And we're supposed to take it seriously. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, that's still in the movie. <laughs> oh, and so so you're fine with the restored version, even though he's still a Muppet. Now he's a, what, a high-definition Muppet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they didn't bother to change this. Uh, this is definitely, like the schlockiest scene in the movie um, because the, the funny part to me is Mike takes a denim shirt and covers up this little creature with it. Right. And uh, so he's like fake wrestling with this creature, which is, it's almost like something out of like a, like a, a, a well, like naked gun. Isn't there a scene where somebody throws a towel on his head and he's like wrestling this towel? Isn't, isn't that right? Yeah, it's like, well, it's like Bruce Campbell fighting his own hand in Evil Dead 2. Right, right. And so they, Mike wrestles with this thing all the way downstairs and then they throw it into the sink to try to put it down the trash compactor. I mean, the, the sink disposal. Yeah, the, this is the scene when I was showing Phantasm to my daughter. She's watching the slapsticky fight with an imaginary fly. And she kind of looks at me like, Dad, seriously? I'm like, come on, the rest of the movie's good. Just ignore this scene. I, I've got to think this was an intentional bit of humor, like a, like a nod to, to exploitation and B-movies, because it, it is so schlocky. And it, I would say it's tonally different than the rest of the movie, too. But but it's so funny, too. It really is. And if it, if it was a filmmaker that I thought was incompetent, I would probably be rolling my eyes. But I, I think they make it work. So it's your it's a tribute to a B movie, even though it's a fly, not a B. <laughs> Sorry, I had to go for that joke. You had. To, yeah, <laughs> it's a dreamlike. It's late. It's a dreamlike quality. I don't know what I'm doing. Okay, so the rest of the movie, and I swear to God, even in my notes, I can't keep it, st it straight. The rest of the movie is either car chases or people sneaking into the mortuary in some various order here. Yeah, basically, yeah. I mean, uh, I was sitting there watching it last night thinking you could really, like, mix and match a lot of these scenes and put them in a different order and nobody would notice. Maybe in the restored version he did to see if you would catch it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I see, I'm going to have to go back and watch that original theatrical cut. Okay, so the first scene is Jody, the older brother, goes to Morningside. He's like, damn it, some old dude attacked my brother and lost a finger. I'm going to go see what's going on. So the older brother sneaks into Mortuary through the basement, same thing. And basically, he doesn't meet the tall man or the sentinel spear. He gets attacked by the little midget Jawa guys and fights them off and shoots one in the head. Yeah, and I was asking myself last night, how in the hell did Jody not shoot himself in the head in this part? Because <laughs> it's on his back, right? And then he brings the, he brings the gun up and just sort of, you know, uh, takes it a, a distance from his head and just shoots indiscriminately to kill this thing. He's not very careful about it at all. Uh, Jody's like the Annie Oakley of wherever this place is. He's a trick shot artist. <laughs> well, and as he said a couple minutes earlier, 
uh, to Mike, warning shots are bullshit. Yeah. That's another one of my favorite lines in the movie. <laughs> All right. So my, so Jody has snuck into the mortuary, fought off one of these little dwarf d- dudes, and he's uh, when he comes home, Oh, no. Oh, I remember this. Again, I'm getting mixed up with all the car chases. There's, there's like five car chases in this movie. Yeah. Uh, it wouldn't be the 70s without a bunch of yeah. car chases. So Mike, the little brother, drives up. A little 13-year-old kid drives the Barracuda up to Morningside, picks up his brother. And as they're driving home, they're pursued by a hearse. This hearse comes after them from Morningside with no driver and basically tries to run them off the road. They somehow run it off the road instead, and they find out that it did have a driver, but it was a little dwarf. And surprise, when they pull back the dwarf's hood, it's their friend Tommy who died in the first scene of the movie. (laughs) (laughs) This is – Reggie has a little run here that really cracks me up. Um, I I don't know if you'd like me to do the whole thing, but – Well, okay, I'll set you up. So – As they fight off this little dwarf in the hearse, Reggie, the ice cream man, happens to drive by. And they're like, hey, this is our buddy Tommy. Only somebody's shrunk him down into a dwarf and had made him try to kill us. Let's put this body into Reggie's ice cream truck, which seems (laughs) like a natural thing. And now from here on out, Reggie is involved in the plot as well. They go back to the house, and this is where Reggie goes on his rant of what they need to do to this tall man. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Okay, well, well, my my favorite... The part I was referring to was was just before this. Um, do you want me to quote it, or should we I don't just... remember it, so it'll be a surprise for me. Okay, <laughs> I don't know why this amused me, but he he goes, uh, Jesus, you didn't tell me the dwarf was Tommy. We buried him on Monday, and look what they did to him. He's only three feet long. He must still weigh two hundred pounds. What's all this yellow shit coming out of his head? Hey, this guy's this guy's not gonna leak all over my ice cream, is he? <laughs> And that's like his whole part of the scene. Now, that's the classic stage monologue that actors have used for years in their auditions. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's right up there with, uh, you know, Actor's Nightmare and all kinds of stuff. <laughs> yeah, so, so so Reggie the Ice Cream Man is now involved in the plots. Now, these two brothers and Reggie, and they go back to the house, and they're debating what's going on. They're like, are these people up at the cemetery shrinking these people, shrinking dead bodies down to three feet tall? Why? And then... Jody's like, did they do that to mom and dad, too? Ew. And now (laughs) Reg goes on his little rampage of violence. He's like, you know what we got to do, man? We got to catch that tall dude and stomp the shit out of him until he tells tells us what's going on up there. (laughs) Reggie is so great. (laughs) He's just such like an everyman. He's like a normal guy. He's like an ice cream man uniform for most of the movie. But he, I don't know. There's just something so cool about him. It's like Death Wish. He's an ice cream man with a vengeance. <laughs> and I'll say an, another great thing about this is that the tone and the structure is so weird. And it's so isolated and insular. And and and, and these guys are just like always up all night trying to, to figure this stuff out. Oh, yeah. And there's always a fire in their fireplace. Yeah, it's one of the coolest things about this movie. They're just like up all night dealing with this. <laughs> so Reggie's solution is find the tall man and drive a stake right through his heart. Yeah, <laughs> that's basically it. Yeah. Okay, so uh, stop me if you've heard this before. The movie's going to get weird now. <laughs> 
Yeah, this is where they just send Mike off to this creepy-ass antique store. Well, wait over there while I go do some business. Well, yeah, the two older guys, we're going to go take care of the mortuary. You go hang out with these girls at this antique store that we, that our friends own. Wait, are there only friends in this town, the psychic girl with the creepy grandma and the antique store owner? Like, make some younger friends, dude. But again, it's a part of what I love about this is there's very few characters and they sort of pop in out of nowhere. You're like, who the hell is this? And why are they here? It's such a strange movie. And watch out for Timmy when you're over at the antique store. <laughs> I hear he's retarded. <laughs> Timmy, no. All right. So Mike gets sent to the antique store to wait there while the two older guys go take care of the mortuary. Although I forgot there's an actual plot point here. That Mike is wandering through the antiques, looking at the pictures, and like in It, the old TV movie, he sees a vintage picture of Morningside from like a hundred years ago, and the tall man is in there, and the tall man turns and looks at him in the picture. It's a creepy image. Oh, I love this part. In fact, I, I almost forgot about it until I was watching it last night, and that part came up like, oh yeah, this is, because I wasn't sure this if this was from this one or from one of the sequels, but that shot of him where he's got the, he's the tall man is on the horse and carriage. Mm -hmm. It's a black and white shot. And he turns real slow and it zooms in real slow. That's a that's a beautiful shot. And it's it's one of the most indelible, indelible images from this movie. Yeah, it's amazing how this movie straddles the line between goofy and not, you know, professional at all. And just amazing. Some of these scenes are just like that is a great horror movie image. Yeah. But on the same token, I've watched so much schlock and so many B movies and so much trash that like even the the less proficient moments in this movie I think are still like I said a hair above schlock is the best way I can put it. <laughs> yes, and again I would love to see this movie riffed on riff tracks or mystery science theater because it's perfect. That's right there in the sweet spot. I would think riff tracks has to have done this already, right? I'm, I don't I'm think not so. Sure. Really. Wow, because they do like actually good movies and movies that people enjoy. So, well, maybe maybe you should uh, recommend it for them. There you go. I'll get the uh, the ball rolling, the silver sphere, if you will. <laughs> <But -dum> yeah. <laughs> okay, so here we go. There's a lot of plot points here i got to cover real quickly. So Mike wants to go back away from the antique store. Now he knows the more the, the tall man is some kind of supernatural vampire-like thing. So he has the women drive him to the uh, back to home. But on the way, they pass Reg's ice cream truck. So Reg, as he's driving home with his ice cream, gets attacked by the dead dwarf in the back of his truck. It somehow survived. So Reg gets assaulted and kidnapped by the bad guys. The two women, when they stop to help Reg, get assaulted and kidnapped by the bad guys. And Mike basically has to run home and find Jody and meet up with him again. And even these two girls are kind of freaky because they're, they're two blondes named Sally and Susie. <laughs> There's a little bit of a shining vibe there. I, I don't know. Something kind of weirded me out. And I was also thinking, like, Mike physically gets dragged through the rear windshield of his car. And I was sitting there thinking, how did his head not just splatter in this part? But again, it's that dreamlike quality, I guess. Kids had harder heads in the 70s. <laughs> it was all that hair. All the hair, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. He's, he's got a generous uh, head of hair in this movie. 
Okay, so now it's going to be the final assault in this movie, where Reg has been kidnapped by the tall man and all his minions. These girls have, even though we've only known them for five seconds. <laughs> Let's go rescue them. <laughs> and so Jody and Mike plan their assault on Morningside to figure out what's going on and stop the tall man. Except, once again, Jody will not take his younger brother. He locks his brother in his room with a screwdriver, wedges it in the door, and Jody goes off by himself. And this is where Mike gets his great MacGyver moment. I was just going to say that. <laughs> I even have it in my notes. Mike turns into MacGyver. <laughs> this is a fun scene that really doesn't belong in the movie, but it's still fun. It's so weird. <laughs> okay, so what happens? Explain this to people. <laughs> well, Mike is sitting there uh, at his desk, and then he's playing with a shotgun shell. And uh, somehow he figures out, uh, I can get this to explode. So he walks over to the door and he hits it with a hammer, I believe, which uh, makes this gaping hole in the door that somehow doesn't hurt him. Uh, so then he reaches through the hole and fiddles with the uh, with the doorknob from the outside and, and gets himself out so he can escape. Right. I love this scene because it's so elaborate and so pointless. Like we yeah. get five minutes of Mike trying to figure out how to get out of his room by developing this shotgun shell hammer and he gets out of his room and it's all exciting. And then he's going to run to help his brother and the tall man's just right there. And he's like, I've been waiting for you boy and grabs him. And that's it. So Mike's escape escape goes nowhere. Now is this, is this the part where he goes downstairs and the tall man comes through the door is, or is, am I getting ahead of myself? I don't know. It's <laughs> there's, See? there's a lot See? of tall man. No, that's later. That's the tall man's second incursion into the house. It's that dreamlike quality again. <laughs> it's so disorienting. Okay, we're gonna yada yada over a bunch of stuff because again, what what we have to do is get to the showdown at the end of the movie. So, I do want to say one thing though. Uh, there are several instances in this film where uh, Jody seems to channel Michael Knight from Knight Rider. Uh, he's even got the fluffy hair and the leather jacket. He's sailing down the road. I just wanted to throw that in there because I found it amusing. Well, he was pre-Michael Knight. So if oh, anything, yeah. Hasselhoff ripped him off. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, hey, I wouldn't doubt it. Yeah. Although, can you imagine this movie with Hasselhoff in there? That would have been amazing. Oh, my God. This would be so much. This would be a five-star movie. <laughs> I would love to see, like, Hasselhoff as Jody and their buddy Reg. You want someone weird and off-putting? I want Christopher Walken as Reg. <laughs> oh god hey how about clint howard <laughs> clint howard would be good a really young nicholas cage doing nicholas cage things yes. man this could have been an amazing movie because reggie already reminds me of clint howard in this from ice cream man i mean he's even got the uniform right in fact i was sitting there thinking did ice was ice cream man influenced by reggie in this movie because it, it it seems like it, it could have been a perfect you know a to b line <laughs> Okay, let's get to the first of about four conclusions to this movie. Oh, so, yeah. Okay, so... This has more endings than uh, Return of the King, right? It really does. It's crazy. Yeah, it's like Clue. There's multiple endings. You choose which one you want. <laughs> that's, that's an even better analogy. <laughs> <laughs> the two brothers end up at Morningside. Somehow Mike escapes the tall man, whatever. And they get up there, and Mike is sneaking around Morningside, and Jody's sneaking around Morningside. And this is where we get the second appearance of the Sentinel Sphere, only this one does not go so well for the little silver ball. And this is where Mike runs straight into his dad's casket, right, too? Yeah, that's, I, I didn't even catch that until this last viewing. 
That's why they're going to the cemetery. They want to make sure their parents' bodies are still in their crypt. And the tall man has not defiled them somehow. In fact, I feel like this is one of the first moments in the movie where, like, they really throw logic aside. <laughs> like, like you could, you could, if you were watching very, very carefully, you would go, this has to be a dream. Because they go back looking for their dad's casket, and it just happens to be right there. Like, you know, con- plot convenience. I, I got to point this out. We'll, we'll go into the logistics of decomposition here. Their parents have been dead like a year and a half or so. Would you really want to see your parents' bodies after a year and a half of decomposition? I don't think so. I wouldn't want to see anybody after that long. <laughs> yeah, but that's what they're doing. I, you, they don't really spell it out in the movie. They're literally searching through the ma- the mausoleum looking for their parents' crypt to pull the bodies out. Yeah. Well, and that was something that, that it was interesting that Don Coscarelli said is that one of his concepts behind this movie is he wanted to see – he wanted to, like, explore how Americans treat death. And that's why he made the main villain a, a mortician, because he thought that was fascinating. <laughs> but then he goes off in this really bizarre tangent, and it just gets more and more surreal as we go. Wait, this is the movie he came up with when he wanted to explore the fascinating concept of how Americans handle death? Uh, that's what he said. I, I don't know if he was doing copious amounts of drugs or, or just that all that free beer. I, I don't know. I wanted to make a movie about how neighbors handle their mentally challenged neighborhood children. <laughs> yeah, he was originally going to call this movie Timmy. Portrait of a retard. <laughs> hey, you can't say it. See, that's out of context. So I'm sorry. You, I'm sorry. You apologize. No, I just can't. Okay. So, uh, I'm going to get canceled on Twitter, Mario. Oh, wait. They don't, I don't use my real name, so they won't know. <laughs> my 12 Staff Picks listeners are coming after you. All right, so, yeah, the Sentinel Ball appears here for the second time, and this time it's got night vision. It's really cool, where you just see it in red vision from the ball's point of view as it flies around the hall, and it's going to kill Mike, except it gets blown away because Jody has a shotgun and he blows it out of the sky. So, you know, pour one on the ground for the poor sphere. We lose him here. And this is also where Reggie suddenly returns, right? Yes, plot convenience playhouse right here. Yeah, yeah. All of a sudden, it's like, where'd you come from? (laughs) Oh, oh, yay, Reggie lived. That's great. Okay, I will explain this exactly how it appears in the movie. So there's this weird humming room in the mortuary. There's a humming noise. There's these statues of faces above the wall. Something behind that wall or behind that door is scary and very very, you know, important to this, this operation, whatever's going on here. And so Mike and Jody go into this humming room for the first time and as, and to check out what's in there. And as they walk in, Reg, the ice cream man who was kidnapped about 10 minutes ago, suddenly pops up behind them and just says, Oh, I escaped. I'm free now. <laughs> Ta-da! <laughs> yes. Although I love the second part of that. Oh, and those girls with Mike in the antique store, I freed them too. And they're now, they climbed out a window. They're safe. Now, we never saw any of that, but it happened. Plow through that. <laughs> they just throw it out there like, oh, yeah, okay, well, whatever. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> As they say in Mystery Science Theater, movie, do you have something you'd like to share with us? <laughs> Meanwhile, in another movie. <laughs> so we gloss over this heroic escape that Reg and the girls had, and they just tell us it happened. Oh, yeah, I'm free. Let's, let's work together now. 
and I do want to say that, as I suspected, this white room is an homage to Stanley Kubrick. Kubrick. Uh, Don Coscarelli said that in, in I think, both Q&As I saw. Because the first time I saw this, I was thinking, this reminds me of 2001. Okay, I can, I can definitely see that. Yeah, this... This is one of the bigger set pieces of the movie, this humming room. And this is where the plot of this movie is going to go batshit insane all of a sudden when we learn out when we, when we learn what the tall man's plans really are. And in, in yet another moment of the movie where they just sort of throw this info dump out there and you just sort of have to swallow it. <laughs> um, but before we get there, this is this is right where the barrels start falling down, right? Well, yeah, once once the morning side collapses. Okay, I'll lead us up to that. So they're in the humming room, and the humming room has just got this buzz and this hum. You don't know what it is. There's all these barrels, like, uh, <laughs> I hate to say this, but the Jeffrey Dahmer cannibal barrels where he would dissolve his victims. That's what they look like. Oh, good Lord. <laughs> these little black <laughs> barrels where the tall man is storing bodies. They somehow shrink bodies down to three feet tall, put them in these barrels, and do something with them. And that's where Mike and Jody's parents are in one of these barrels, by the way. Oh, I didn't even put that together. Yeah, but in the middle of the room, there's these two prongs, like, quote-unquote, a tuning fork, an A-flat tuning fork or whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the, the non-existent A-sharp tuning fork. Yeah, the tuning fork. <laughs> and this is where this the humming of the room seems to come from this tuning fork, these two metal poles. And Mike, the younger brother, goes and looks. He kind of notices if you put your hand in between these two metal things, they disappear. And he puts his head inside. And, oh, boy, he sees something interesting. What does he see inside these tuning forks? Uh, he, he sees outside the mortuary, right? Outside the universe. That, that's right. That's right. He see, Now, he sees the dwarf planet, right, with the red sky? Yeah. See, this, like I said, this is where I get confused because there's so much going on in the last half hour of this. I don't remember what happens where. Yeah. So Mike looks through this this metal gate. It's a really a gateway to another planet. And you got to stick with me here on this one. It makes no sense. Mm -hmm. He sees another planet, some red planet with a red sky. All these dwarves are there walking in a line, theoretically doing some kind of manual labor, building pyramids or something. I don't know what they're for. And they're dink dinks. They're dink dinks, yeah. And so Mike sees this other world, and he almost falls into it through the gate, but his brother pulls him back by the belt. And Mike turns around, and somehow he has immediately deduced what the plot of this movie is. <laughs> I know. <laughs> All of a sudden, he's like, oh, the dwarves are slaves, and, and they have to crush them uh, beca because of the gravity and the heat. Yes. What? Mike is a very gifted child. In, in two seconds of looking at the dwarves, he has figured out the tall man's entire plan. The tall man is an alien from another world who has come to Earth to work as a caretaker at a cemetery. So he has free access to bodies, shrinks the bodies, re reanimates them, sends them back to his home planet to do slave labor. Mike has figured out everything. Somehow he turned into Carl Sagan in five seconds and was able to <laughs> divine all of that just from being on the planet's surface for a couple seconds. Yeah. And it's like, what the hell is this movie? <laughs> <laughs> it's dreamlike, Mario. Yes. But, but, but again, I will say that, that the way he spits out that dialogue there is kind of how you would talk in a dream. It's very scattered and nonsensical. And it's like, how did this guy know all this? <laughs> It's very strange. 
I do love how complex this movie is and how deep it is, and it's solved in two seconds of dialogue by Mike by looking at something. By a, by a teenage kid, yeah. <laughs> yes. And this, again, all hell is going to break loose in the screenplay, that we need to separate these characters and have them face a bunch of scary stuff in the mortuary. So there's a convenient power outage, and when the power comes back on, they're all in different parts of the house. No explanation whatsoever. And I will say that this blackout part is so much fun to see in a theater when when the lights go out for a while and they're kind of talking to each other. In fact, I would imagine was that done in a in a film before this? It had to have been, right? There's no way Coscarelli invented that. Yeah, it's such a cool conceit, though. It, it with the movie being so bizarre and surrealist, and then all of a sudden the lights are out. That that's a that's a fun moment, especially if you're in a in a crowded theater. All right. Hey, I just thought of a movie that did it before this. Wait Until Dark with Audrey Hepburn. Oh, that's right. You're right. Yeah, I have not seen that in ages, but yeah, I remember that now. If you guys are looking for a cool, older suspense movie, look up Wait Until Dark. I love that movie. Yeah, Audrey Hepburn is fantastic in that, and Alan Arkin's really good, too. Okay, so... Again, I'm just yada yadding over a bunch of stuff because I have no idea what the hell happens at this stretch of the movie. That's... I don't either. <laughs> so Mike <laughs> gets attacked by dwarves. Uh, Jody gets attacked by the woman in Lavender. And Reg is left all by himself in the gate, the humming room, the gate to another world. And somehow, because every character in this movie is an Albert Einstein-level genius... He realizes that those are basically tuning forks, and if he puts one hand on each, he can reverse the gate and somehow destroy the house. Well, he's a musician, man. I mean, <laughs> if anybody knows that hum, it's him, you know? So all Reg has to do is put his hands on this metal gate. It basically reverses gravity. All the barrels in the room get sucked into this gate into another planet, and the entire Morningside mortuary collapses on itself or disappears, kind of like the poltergeist house. Yep, yep. It, it's a, it's actually a really a really ambitious kind of effect for a movie like this. Yeah, and based on a true story. <laughs> no, based not, on, not oh, at all. Okay, <laughs> you almost had me there for a second. All right, so. All I remember about this end is that Reg gets killed, right? I kind of forgot because he's in the sequels, but he gets stabbed by the woman in Lavender who turns into the tall man. So somehow Reg dies here. Yes, uh, the tall man has another conquest in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> now our beloved Reggie. <laughs> okay, so here we go. The last 10 minutes of the movie, we'll try to finish strong here. So yeah, this I actually wrote in my notes that this last 10 minutes is like a they put they, they blow all their load here. This is like the special effects bonanza. <laughs> and again, I do think this movie is about 10 minutes too long. There's a couple a couple too many endings. But here's the first or maybe the third ending, I think, Ron, where they've destroyed the house. Reg is dead. Now it's just Jody and Mike. And they're like, we got to stop the tall man. Somehow he's still out there. And so they devise a plan that. Somehow there's a 1,000-foot mine shaft right by their house. They will trick him into falling into it. <laughs> this movie just gets more and more nonsensical. And and yet, at this point in the movie, it's like, you got to be invested in it. I mean, <laughs> it, this this movie teaches you how to watch it as you go. So if by this point in the movie you're going, what? That's absurd. Then Then, you know, there's no hope. By the way, if there's a 1,000-foot well down the street from their house, there's no way Timmy has not fallen down it yet. 
which has me thinking of Lassie now. <laughs> Even Lassie could not get Timmy out from a thousand feet. When I think Timmy falling down a well, I think Lassie's going to come in and save him. <laughs> so, yeah, so Jody's plan is, well, I have the exact quote here. We got to run that tall bastard straight down to hell. Yeah. So, so Jody drops Mike off at their house as he drives off to the mine to clear all the safety barriers around it, which seems like a terrible idea, <laughs> but okay. And then as Jody is there, Mike gets attacked by the tall man. The tall man appears one last time at the house. And this is the scene you talked about earlier where he blows the door off. This is a cool scene. Oh, right, right. And uh, apparently that is the, the um, co-producer, Paul Pepperman, that uh, that set up that whole shot, which is an amazing shot. I mean, it, actually, the way everything that leads up to that, too, where he's walking downstairs and it's all quiet and it's all dark. I mean, that, that's, a, that's a really, really cool part of the movie. Yeah. So this is where the tall man comes to kill Mike for the last time. And this is where we finally get some of his iconic quotes where he says, Boy, you play a good game, boy, but the game is finished. Now you die. Yeah. Um, and, and I would say the music in this part of the movie really kicks up a notch, too. Um, there's a there's a, a synthesizer they're using. Uh, it's a variant of a Mellotron. It's called an Orchestron, I think, or a, or a Voicestron. Mm -hmm. So every time you hear like those... It almost sounds like voices in the background, but you can tell it's a synth. That's what that is. And uh, they really lean into it hard at this point in the movie, especially when they're outside by the grave. Okay, yeah. And this leads to the final chase where the tall man chases Mike. And Mike is trying to get the tall man to run to this well where they can knock him down and lock him there for all eternity. And the tall man basically throws all his tricks at Mike at the end here. Well, let's see. He turns into the lavender lady. He throws mud with hands grasping out of the earth at Mike. The graves appear and block his path. Basically, we get the tall man's greatest hits here in the last two minutes. Yeah, yeah, they, they really go for broke with all this right here. And at the very end, they get to the well. And what happens to the poor tall man? Well, he, uh, he falls into the grave, right? Into the well, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, <laughs> yes, that's a well. Why did I think that was a grave? It's a thousand foot. You know, someone dug the hell out of that grave if it's a thousand feet deep. <laughs> it's so weirdly, the sets here are so weirdly constructed. I, I actually did think that was a grave last night. I don't know why. <laughs> all, well, we know looks that, like it. all we know is that Mike apparently lives within two minutes of a graveyard and mortuary on one side and a thousand foot well on the other side. Yeah. And then there's this hill up at the top of it where Jody is. And uh, he, I, I think it's insinuated that he's, he starts rolling these boulders down, correct? <laughs> the tall man falls down the well. Mike jumps over it. The, the tall man falls into it. And Mike somehow rolls these thousand pound boulders down very easily to block the hole so nobody can get out. Right. And then we have that great shot of Jody standing on top of the hill, raising his arms triumphantly, right? That's right. We won. <laughs> it's so funny <laughs> alright and I always I swear I have seen this movie a hundred times I always forget there's an epilogue after that scene where they negate everything that just happened yeah I, I forget it too and in fact I must say that 
I think that's the biggest drawback for the movie for me. Because, like I said, I can't quite get to the point where I say this is like a top-tier favorite of mine. Mm-hmm. That ending, it's like, well, wait a minute, what? Are they saying it was all just a dream, which is like the most cliche ending ever? Or how how much of this was a dream? All right, Chris, I'm going to put you on the spot here. You have told me one of your favorite moments of Staff Picks episodes is where my co-host and I tried to explain the mall heist scene in Jackie Brown, and we were unable to do it. It sure was. Well, now you will have your moment. Explain the ending here with a dream with Reg and how they try to present it in the movie. Oh, you cruel bastard. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know if I can. They, they, they try to say, okay, so suddenly... Suddenly, Mike is in bed, and he wakes up, and he actually looks pretty normal. He doesn't look like he had a nightmare or a bad dream or any kind of dream, really. And then suddenly, he's talking to Reggie in front of the fire. Who died a scene ago. Right. And then all of a sudden, they throw out all this info dump, and Reggie says, uh, you know, you, never, you haven't been the same since the funeral. And then uh, it's insinuated that... Um, Jody died at some point in the future, in the past. And then Mike looks at a picture of Jody with his guitar. Uh, it's, I don't know. I don't know what's real or what's a dream. It, it, it's, it, it's kind of like Total Recall, except it's a mess. You did an admirable job of not knowing what the hell you were talking about. Good job. I, I really tried, but <laughs> yeah. I got I got most of it right? right. No, you're right. That's exactly. Again, we just saw the whole movie where Jody and Mike trapped the tall man in the well. And the very next scene is Mike with Reg, who's apparently back from the dead. And Reg said, oh, there was no tall man. There was no mortuary. Your brother died in a car crash and you've never been the same since. So it's just me and you now, buddy. I'm looking after you. Yeah. So it negates the entire movie. And I will say that, like, as I said, a lot of this was sort of on the fly. They were going by the seat of their pants. And apparently they filmed several different endings to this. They didn't even know how it was going to end when they were making it. I don't think they know how the movie ends now. (laughs) (laughs) It's 40 years later. Like, we still don't know how this motherfucker ends. (laughs) And they have tried to, like, explain this a little bit in some of the sequels, but... Uh, it's kind of iffy logic to me. I, I, I don't know. You got me. But we do get one iconic jump scary scene at the end, which is not a modern cheap jump scare. This one earns its uh, stripes where Reggie's like, all right, well, Mike, you know, I think you just need a change of scenery. You've had too much death in your life. Go upstairs, pack up. We're going to drive around and travel around the country like Forrest Gump. And, uh, yeah. So Mike goes upstairs, and in his bedroom, he closes his door, and in the mirror, you see a picture of the tall man behind him. And the tall man just says, boy! And Mike turns around and screams, and these zombie hands reach out from his door, pull him into his door, and that's the end of the movie. <laughs> in a shot that must have influenced Nightmare on Elm Street. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, perfect. It's an almost identical ending to the first Nightmare on Elm Street. And that's the movie, which we have no idea what the hell happened other than it was a dreamlike quality and there was some creepy stuff at a cemetery and uh, there was a silver ball. That's all we know. <laughs> some stuff happened <laughs> and it was fun to watch. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. 
so that that would like I said, that is the one thing I would say about this movie is you get to the end and you're like, I'm so thoroughly confused. <laughs> well, remember in the late seventies, most of the audience would have been high, so it would have made perfect sense to them. That's right. That's right. And one thing I did want to mention earlier, um, like I said, there there is I guess this is potentially another uh, drawback to this film. There is one performance in here that I'm not sold on. Can you guess who that is? I think you're going to say Jody, but I would say Reg. Reg is the one to me. I'm like, there's no way that guy's an actor. Really? Yep. I'm, no, I'm, I would, I'm taking down your sacred cow. I wouldn't say either of those. I would say it's the granddaughter, the psychic's granddaughter. <laughs> I mean, she's so flat tonally and and, and so kind of almost disinterested in the scene. Mm-hmm. I'm like, that that's the one moment in the film where I'm like almost taken out of it. Like I, I don't, I, I I'm not sure I would have put that actress in there. But really, so you don't like you don't like Reggie very much. No, I do not understand the cult of Reggie. I know there's a he has a huge fan favorite. I don't really get it. Oh man, he, he to me he's the not on the level of Ash, but he's the Ash of this franchise to me. <laughs> so wait, you don't like the little blonde girl saying? Put your hand in the box. Grandma says, put your hand in the box. No fear, Michael. If you have fear, then it won't work. I wonder if she's friends with a boy named Timmy down the street. (laughs) I think Timmy is her tutor, perhaps. (laughs) (laughs) Timmy! Terrible. How dare you bring up these types of jokes on staff picks? You know, you're such a bad influence on me. You're like that devil on my shoulder. But yeah, I, I I wanted to mention her before we uh, before we wrapped up because uh, it, it just rub, she just rubs me the wrong way. But but Reggie, I, I can't not love Reggie. I, I I and I don't think he's like an actor really. But most of these people in this movie, I don't think were. They were just all kind of friends of Don Coscarelli's, and he kept he kept casting his friends in these movies. And meanwhile, there's Angus Scrim, classically trained actor, saying, what the hell am I doing with these children in this movie? Yeah. And 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 he does really just kind of steal the movie in, in terms of performances. I mean, if you want to point to one actor in this whole franchise who I think is the, the real strong point, I'd say Angus Scrim. Oh, yeah. He, I mean, that's iconic top tier villain. He was he was so great. This This movie doesn't really have a lot of street cred without him. He really gives it legitimacy and it's funny i was just thinking of a comparison with donald pleasance the year before saying why the hell am i in this movie with all these teenagers i have no idea who these people are (laughs) (laughs) that is a good comparison and i i i I swear i might be wrong on this i want to say that i read somewhere that a michael baldwin was was disappointed that mike didn't continue to be like the central figure in this franchise i could be totally wrong though i apologize to him if i'm you know, misquoting him, but um, because in this movie, they seem to really be setting it up like Mike is the main protagonist, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. Uh, I've only seen the sequel. I've seen Phantasm 2 once. I don't know if I've ever seen anything after that. Now, again, noted my stance on sequels that I hate them with a burning passion, but he is not the star of the sequels? Well, in the second one, he got replaced by James LaGrosse, who I think does a fine job, um, but apparently the studio gave Coscarelli a, an ultimatum and said, okay, well, you can either have Reggie Bannister or you can have A. Michael Baldwin. 
and Coscarelli chose Reggie, which I kind of think was the right decision. I I know you don't you're not real fond of Reggie, but um, and then for the third one, I believe a Michael Baldwin came back. Um, but, but yeah, that second one that's not him. Hmm. Yeah, I, I did not remember that at all. So see, I, Mike is clearly the main character. I cannot believe they made a sequel without A. Yeah, A Michael. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I never know what to call him, A or Mike or Mikey or. Um, yeah, it is kind of strange. And I think by the time, sadly, by the time A. Michael Baldwin came back to the franchise, Mike was no longer the lead character. It was very much a Reggie uh, franchise. Well, I will forever consider Phantasm a one-off, just its own standalone movie, because the sequel and everything came so much later. It's a whole different era that I don't really, I would never consider that canon for this movie. Like, to me, this is just a weird, standalone, dreamlike, way better than it has any right to be, but still not a masterpiece horror movie. Just one of those that I, I've always had a soft spot for, just because there's nothing I can compare it to. Yeah, I, I would agree. And and every time I see it, it gets more compelling, even though every time I see it, I still have no idea what the hell's going on. <laughs> it makes less sense every viewing. I mean... Even sitting there last night, watching it carefully, taking notes on everything that I could, I was still confused. Like, I understood it marginally more, mm-hmm. but I, I, you know, I, I, you know, look how hard a time I had describing some of the plot elements. But again, you know, it's hard to say. Was it, was it Coscarelli's vision to do that? Because I, I don't want to say he's an inept filmmaker because... This was made on a budget of $300,000. Oh, yeah. It's amazing. And, you know, it, it, it made – it has grossed $12 million, which isn't a lot. Now, I don't know if that was the original box office haul or, or all the reissues and everything. I don't really know. But it has become this, this major cult classic. And, you know, a lot of people put it on their favorite horror movie lists of all time. Uh, it's definitely one of mine. Like I said, first time I saw it out of the gate, I loved it even though it is confusing. Yeah, it's. I've always said, it's. I would never put this on my list of best horror movies, but I always put it on my list of favorite horror movies, so that should say something. Well, and, and I will say that, like, we're in good company, I think, because J.J. Uh, Abrams, of course, is a, is a big fan. Um, I, don't, I don't know if you know this, but, but Bad Robot did the restoration for this. Oh, no, I didn't know that. No. Okay, I, I don't think I mentioned that earlier, but... I guess, according to Don Coscarelli, J.J. Abrams just called him up in the late 90s and wanted to talk about Phantasm because he was a big fan. So then flash forward to about 2014, and J.J. wanted a print of Phantasm Phantasm to to show at Bad Robot. And Don Coscarelli was like, well, all I have is a DVD or a couple of really old, bad, shoddy prints. And J.J. Abrams said, well, we need to fix that. And so J.J. Abrams and Bad Robot restored this movie meticulously. They did it in between um, filming Star Trek and Star Wars. His team just kind of did it. And Coscarelli said it barely cost him anything to restore this just because J.J. Abrams was a fan of this movie. Wow. Yeah, I, I think that's that's an amazing story. I mean, yeah, there are very few movies that – you know, inspired that much devotion and people loving it over the years. So as much as we're kind of making fun of aspects of this movie, 
there's something to be said for a movie that this many people love. And, you know, people wanted a sequel eight years later to a movie I didn't even know existed, but somehow there were enough people that wanted it to happen. And again, it's not the greatest movie in the world, but again, you have the tall man, one of the great iconic horror villains. You have the little silver sphere who I, I think those are so cool. Those little s silver balls that just drill into your heads. I mean, that's the iconic image of, phantasm and then again you have the theme music which may be one of the top two or three theme scores of all time of any horror movie so i mean there's negatives to this movie but there's definitely positives that's why i think everyone should see it at least once you should know about it you should experience it just take a time you know time machine trip back to 1979 and put yourself in the theater as if you're watching us with a bunch of kids cheering it on for the first time. And it's a, it's a fun little experience. And it, it just has so much heart too. I mean, you can really tell this is a bunch of guys who just threw this together. They were doing it on the fly. You know, it, it, it's got so much spirit to it. And as I said, you know, a lot of my favorite horror movies are ramshackle. Um, I like a lot of stuff that that's, you can tell they took the a low budget, did the best they could with it, had some fun with it. Um, you know, like uh, Butcher Baker, Nightmare Maker is one of my favorites. It's more like an exploitation film and uh, some Frankenhookers like that or um, uh, Straight Jacket by William Castle. These are all just sort of off the top of my head. Kathy's Curse is a fun one, and that's got a lot of ineptitude in it. But um, even Hack lantern Have you seen Hack lantern yet? I have not, no. Oh, God. <laughs> to me, that movie should be talked about as much as Troll 2 or The Room. Hack wow. Lantern is so much fun, but I cannot say it's a good movie. That's high praise. <laughs> yeah. But but anyway, I mean, Phantasm is on a much, much higher tier than, than something like that. Mm -hmm. um, it's just so much fun to watch, and, and you could tell they had, had fun making it, even if it was difficult work took them a long time to do it but they took they took a modest budget and and just did something that was totally different and unique yeah and again that's a lot of people ask me why i like older horror movies more than modern horror movies it's a nostalgia and i'm like no one thing with modern movies that tend to bug me is they're too polished they always look way too professional Ugh, like yes. I kind of like that about the phantasms of the world. It does not look polished at all. And I find that so charming, but I've actually had some of my younger listeners say, I can't get into older horror movies because they don't look polished. So there's something, there's like a barrier between in the movie. I can't really get into it. So I can see both sides, but I am a big fan of seventies unpolished horror movies. I'm right there with you. I, I, I just don't understand that at all. To me, horror movies, especially in the last 20 years, so many of them look so plastic to me and I just, I can't emotionally connect with them or, or I don't know. It's, it's very hard for me to appreciate modern horror. I, I would much rather watch something gritty and ramshackle like this um, practical effects and stuff. I, 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 this is just, you know, as we were talking before, this is sort of our, our wheelhouse with seventies horror. I, mm -hmm. I think that was, that was the peak I'd say eighties too, to a lesser degree. But um, yeah, this this stuff is. I think this stuff is our bread and butter. Bread and butter. Yeah, 
I love the 70s just because, you know, slasher movies were new, so not everything was a slasher yet. So there's a lot of really weird, unique, creative movies. Again, they don't always land right on the mark, but I really appreciate what they're trying to do with basically nothing. They had no budget, no stars. It's just, I'm going to make something out of nothing. And I say that phrase a lot, and Phantasm is right there at the top of the, one of, one of the tops at the list there. And it was a time where you could throw anything at the wall to see if it stuck. And you you just can't do that now. Like like maybe if you're an indie filmmaker, um, but but I don't see that happening in in modern day horror. I mean I mean there's a lot of stuff you just can't do because it's offensive too. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as I said, you know you got CGI. So you, in my opinion, you don't have the inventiveness of these films. Like as as many problems as this movie has, these guys worked like pigs on it. I mean you know they really put a lot of effort into it. How did they get the shot of Morningside uh, Mortuary disappearing? I cannot believe they had that in their budget. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and there's a, there was another there was another shot last night that I something disappeared and I was like, "Oh, it was the black box." Oh yeah. Okay. When Mike puts his, Mike put your hand in the black box, grandma says so. <laughs> yeah, and then he 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 puts the money on top of the box and then the box disappears. So I was like, "Oh, that's actually uh, pretty High level effect for this three hundred thousand dollar movie. <laughs> okay, I think we've hopefully done this movie justice. You have anything else to say? We're right under two hours. I'm hoping to keep it there. Anything else you want to say about Phantasm or the cult of Phantasm over the years? Oh boy, no. I, I think we mostly got to everything I wanted to. Um, I will reiterate though that soundtrack or score. It's just fantastic. Uh, it, it's, I, I would say it, it's the best thing about the movie. Um, again, uh, uh, Fred Myro and Malcolm Seagrave did it. And uh, actually, I have two funny anecdotes about that. Um, Fred and Malcolm first played the theme for Don Coscarelli on two pianos. I guess uh, I think he went over to their house or they went to his house or something. And so he got to hear that theme just on two pianos. That must've been so cool. And, uh, the co-producer, Paul Pepperman, uh, first time he got married, I I actually, I think he's only been married once, but, um, when he got married, he walked down the aisle to the theme from phantasm. (laughs) Oh, now it wasn't the disco theme, right? Uh, no, I, (laughs) doubt it <laughs> that's cool i love that someone walked down to the aisle with to the theme from phantasm and yeah i just i can't think of an anecdote better to to close on to close with than that so i'll leave it up to you okay so uh once again that is the most well-known big name horror movie i'm doing for horror month this year and uh i assume most of you watched it i know a lot of people told me they were really looking forward to this episode because they love phantasm so i will throw you i threw you a bone here this is the one really known well-known one i did this year other than you know on top of the really obscure ones i did around it uh let's see uh (laughs) dark knight of the scarecrow who can kill a child the other i was throwing some really fun ones at you this year but this is the big one so Anyway, once again, my name is Mario Lanza. This is Staff Picks. If you need to reach me, you can reach me at, at staffpickspodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at Mario J. Lanza. Until next time, I'll be out there searching for more horror movies that deserve more love, and I'll be playing a good game, boy, while I'm doing it. 
I'll talk to you guys later. Bye.